Every decision that I make impacts other people. Cornus was a monster. Literally, microseconds later, the world fell out. What's the difference between a large pizza and a ski guide? Large pizza can feed people. Welcome to episode 2.9 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. With additional support from Black Diamond Peeps, live, ski, repeat, and 10 Barrel Brewing, here's to living it up with a beer in hand. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Hit me up. I want to hear from you. Where are you listening from? What are you doing while listening to the show? What's your snowpack like? I hope it's deep and stable. However, that certainly hasn't been the theme for this season thus far in many places throughout Western North America. Anyhow, drop me a line. Let me know what you're up to. Hit me up on social media. I'm at the Avalanche Hour podcast on the Instagram and Facebook outlets. I certainly have been in some places where the snowpack has not been super stable. I was recently north of the border in the Monashi Mountains of Interior, BC, taking a ski guide course with the AMGA. The Avalanche Canada forecast was consistently putting out a hazard rating of considerable and high. We were dealing with a number of buried surface ore layers that were quite touchy, especially at and below treeline. It was a great experience to practice guiding in unfamiliar terrain and with a complex snowpack. It took patience, slowing down, and utilizing terrain margins to stay safe. It certainly isn't the time to be teeing off quite yet in many areas. Take your time, do your homework, slow down. Come home safe. In today's episode, we crack a couple 10-barrel pray-for-snow beers while chatting with Weston Deutschlander. Wes is a guide educator and pro teleskier. Yep, that's right. Teleskiing is alive and well. He's also a dedicated father, husband, and part-time sled head. Weston shares a story of a close call he had while guiding last year. We talk about some of the pressures that guiding can create that could cloud our decision-making processes. I had a great time sitting down with Wes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Right, I'd like to welcome Weston Deutschlander to the show. Welcome, Wes. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Nice to see you in Utah. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Nice. Yeah. So, Wes, just give us a little background of your uh, involvement with avalanche work and ski guiding. What's your background? So, my background kind of came um, in a roundabout way. I, I was quote-unquote, a professional athlete. And as I was skiing and filming and stuff like that, I really wanted to get more education about what I was doing, where I was going, and who I was with. And uh, so, yeah, so I started down the avalanche education path. Uh, took a couple of years off there. Took my level two. And I think I had almost 10 years in between my two and my three. And then uh, I slowly started getting into guiding. Um, so, yeah, so 
avalanche education, didn't have any um, patrol background, even though both my uh, parents are ski patrollers, but they're from back east and didn't have any control experience or anything like that. So uh, yeah, so I slowly got into guiding. I've been a, uh, a summertime guide for eight or nine years now, and uh, I thought the two could go hand in hand. But as I found out, there's a lot to learn. Sure. Where, where are you from back east? So I'm originally from uh, Buffalo, New York. I grew up skiing about an hour south in super small hills, uh, Holly Mount, mostly. Also Holiday Valley is right next there. And uh, I also skied a lot at uh, Lake Placid, Whiteface. Oh, nice. I lived in Orchard Park for a couple years. Oh, yeah. So we skied Holiday Valley and Kissing Bridge, I yeah. believe. And cool. So then you moved out west and, and started. What, tell me a little bit about your professional athlete career. Yeah, I moved out here in uh, 2008, just after uh, graduating college in central New York. And uh, I'm a telemark skier, one of those weirdos that uh, has broken bindings. Was filming, doing a little bit of writing, doing a bunch of photography, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, that was an awesome introduction to kind of, I don't know, the ski world and stuff like that. Getting to travel, going up to Alaska, traveling all over Utah, California, stuff like that little bit overseas nothing professionally overseas just but being able to go ski over there and uh yeah yeah it's a that's a great introduction to to skiing in the backcountry i'm sure but i'm sure it's a little bit of a different focus than guiding and and thinking about snow safety you know? it is and you know um a really uh, uh the the contrast to that and i i know we'll get into this a little bit later but um skiing for myself is a lot easier and the goals that I set upon myself are a lot more clearly defined and the heuristics and those traps that I could or could not fall into are kind of easier because I always know there's another day and it's easier and I'm in no rush and I'm out for good snow, not, you know, I don't need to push anything. But with clients and stuff like that, it's a lot harder. There's a lot more pressure on me to perform. I can't just walk away and be like, eh, we'll just get it tomorrow. Or oh, it's not the perfect conditions. The light's not right. We can just walk away. It's like, no, these people are paying a lot of money. You better perform. You better be on it. So, uh, so yeah, so that always been my thing. And I, I, I'd like to think, I'm sure that deep down inside, there's a part of me that would, you know, it'd be hard to say no to something, but it's a lot easier for me to say no on an individual basis or when I'm out skiing with my wife or a photographer or somebody like that, I'd be like, no, oh, it's a stupid idea. Let's go do something else. Cause let's be honest, film lies, photography lies, video lies, and you can always make it work. But when you're out there with 10 paying customers, you don't have that option to just be, or so I thought. I didn't think that I had that option to just be like, no, we're done. We're pulling the plug. We're out of here. So, uh, so yeah, so that was, um, I've been in a lot of high risk, dangerous situations, but, um, when you digest it and you break it down into small pits, I could always say no to it. But learning to, to, to ski guide is also completely different than summertime guiding. There's so many more variables. There's so much more going on. There's a lot more money involved and, uh, yeah, it's harder to to stick to your guns. Sure, in some ways, a lot more expectations, right? These these paying guests expect really good skiing right now, right when they get to the to the cat or the helicopter or the skin track, right? Absolutely, and you know the other thing too. To be completely frank, is there's an internal culture within my organization that was like, who can provide the best day? Who can go out there and get the most creative with their run list? Who can go out there and push the rules or bend it so much. And I kind of got in caught into that trap of being like, I can do that. I'm smart. I can outthink mother nature. And, uh, you can't outthink mother nature and you can't push it in the mountains. The mountains dictate what you can do. Not, not the other way around. Sure. So Wes, you had a kind of a close call this last season in, in 2017. Um, and would you be willing to just share that experience with us and kind of set the stage of what the weather snowpack um, factors were that day and, and maybe any client issues that you were having? Just kind of paint the picture for, for what happened leading up to that event. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this was my first year as a lead guide. I felt a lot of pressure on myself. So that was kind of some internal things going on. Also had a brand first year cat driver who may have wanted to like myself prove prove our worth 
to the uh, to the organization, but uh, the day was super overcast, pounding snow, got a bunch of snow. We had some wind too. Um, all the alpine was completely scoured, so we were really trying to stick um, tree line and below. Um, while we do have a lot of acreage to use, it's still um, you know, it's still kind of a fight for good snow. And like I said, there is that kind of internal conflict to uh, to provide the best day. So, um, yeah, so it was a snowy, completely low-vis day. Um, we started off the day great. We were skiing tree runs. We were skiing on the periphery of our terrain. Um, even though it was, you know, like I said, it was kind of challenging conditions, but we're used to pretty challenging conditions out there. Where I work, we're we're always plagued by a lot of wind. And, uh, so those challenging conditions kind of become the norm and you don't really, you get, you get familiarized with them. You get totally used to them and you kind of let your guard down. So anyways, so we were skiing, skiing in the trees. It was great. Um, it's getting to be about lunchtime and I was like, you know what, let's do one more run before lunch and, uh, let's do this run that is totally in the periphery, totally. And I would even say that it's only been skied maybe, a half dozen times because it's it's a little convoluted to get to and it's also like i said it's on the boundaries of where we operate and usually when there's better skiing on when it's when it's good snow it's easy guiding and when, good visibility and- yeah yeah and all those things and then when it's hard that's when you really earn your keep as a guide so um we'd gone up this cat road three times maybe four times it was three times i think we did two we did two runs in this area and uh in the trees and we went up and uh we also had the the clientele that was with us we had a couple of doctors we had a couple of physicians assistants and a couple ski patrollers um we also had a lot of motion sickness. And because it was a low visibility day, you put people in the back of the cat, they can't see anything. So the people pleaser in me was trying to let clients ride up front. Now, normally as a lead guide, I'm the one that sits in the front so that I can assess situations and conditions and all that kind of stuff. But um, I had a client in the front with me. I was sitting in the middle, kind of cramped up. And then I had my driver and I said to the driver, you know, can we make it? Can we do it? Yeah, yeah, sure. We can do it. And uh, visibility been in and out. The ceiling, you know, it was probably at 8,000 feet one minute, and then it was down at 6,000 feet, 4,000 feet the next minute. Totally, totally blown in. So, um, yeah, we'd gone up to the top. We turned around, and just as we were 45 seconds from, you know, exiting everyone from the cat and turning around, it got bad, and it got really windy had the client up front with me that was puking. We had a couple people already puke, but they assured me they were fine. So we unload everyone, and all of a sudden it just goes completely white and bad. And it's blown, and it's blown. And we're on top of a ridge, and we do have a lot of bamboo um, to tell us where the roads are. Uh, like I said, we'd had a, we have a lot of wind. We also had a pretty big snow year. So we unload everybody out of the cap, and I'm still thinking that this is a good... Um, idea. And so I pull out my GPS that has, you know, that's geocached all of our runs, everything like that, accurate to within a couple of feet. And I say to everybody, all right, let's get super close on me because we have to travel along the ridge. And this is what we're going to do. Everybody feel good. Tail guide, everybody, every, nobody had any objections. So you guys are in your, you're working with a tail guide at the yep, time? Yep. Yeah. So I have, uh, yeah, my buddy, was my tail guide actually um, my boss in the summertime? Super competent skier, trust him with my life. And uh, at no point did we were like, oh, "This is kind of a dumb decision. Let's just get back in the cat," which is, in retrospect, what we should have done. So anyway, so I had two poles, two gloves in my left hand. I had my chest zip undone to my chest pouch where my radio was, and I'm following my phone. And I'm following the bamboo, or what I thought was the bamboo. And in the back corner out of my head, I hear one of the clients say, Wes, if you fall or if you jump off a cornice, do we have to follow you? Go, ha, 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 that's not going to happen. Literally, microseconds later, the world fell out. And uh, 
So like I said, I had an ungloved hand. I had all my other gear in my left hand. My coat was completely unzipped, you know, three quarters of the way, half the way. And I kind of knew what was happening the whole time. I knew that it was a cornice fall. I wasn't really worried about anything. Nothing was coming in front of my face. There was no need to swim. At one point, I kind of looked over at my phone and was like, should I ditch my phone? Should I go for my avalanche airbag? And a little side note to that is I always ski with an avalanche airbag, but I cockily and stupidly would only ever arm my airbag when I thought I was in avalanche terrain. That was a bad move. Um, and I can get more into that later. But uh, anyways, I looked at the, all that stuff and I was like, you know, I'm good. I'm just kind of sliding down. And I know where I am. I knew where I was in the train. There was a couple trees where I ended up going for a little elevator ride of 900 feet. was north facing, 45-ish degrees. Um, and uh, anyways, so about two-thirds of the way, I was like, I know I'm on top of this. I know I'm at the top of this the top end of all the snow, there was a little micro feature terrain trap. And I was like, Oh crap, don't let me get buried here. I did all the hard part. You know, I missed all the baseball bats, went over this last little six foot thing, came to a stop. Um, my tail guide was on the radio instantly kind of freaking out. And I was like, I'm fine. I radioed him when I was sitting down, I stood up. I didn't have any snow on my face. I didn't have any snow on my coat, just stood up. And that was that. That back side, that north-facing side, was completely fogged. I did take some pictures of, of the event on my phone, and you couldn't even see the top. It was just complete split pea soup. So did the, did the cornice break out a little slab below the ridgeline? Yeah, so what, uh, and I went back the next day. We did experience some wind from the time that it happened to the time that I went back. My tail guide, who we all skied down the path um, that it happened on, he was convinced that it broke out like a small six inch soft slab but that's kind of i mean it was snowing there but it was kind of grappling all at the same time so it might have been a six inch soft slab but i would say 95 to 90 to 95 percent of the snow that fell was the cornice now the other bad part about that was because i had told everyone to group up really close to me i had three clients behind me two paying clients and one um it was like a family friend. It actually happened to be the cat driver's partner that was with me. So I thought when I went over the cornice that I was the only one, stood up, no harm, no foul. But apparently that wasn't the case. Like I said, three other people came down with me. I think the max the max that one person went was like 30 or 40 feet. Um, one person kicked a ski. They were able to find that ski. I ended up going for about a 900-foot ride. And like I said, the other people went they basically fell the cornice and uh yeah so the cornice was a monster in in after this year i had also called this like the season of the cornice like the cornices were unprecedented and absolutely monstrous and uh i went back up and i measured it the next day and it was it was like 30 feet and it broke back to within a foot of the bamboo and that bamboo is kind of like our safety marker so um so those were kind of the facts. After that, um, everyone skied down to me. Everyone recovered their gear. We had the cat driver divert come around. And we actually ended up finishing the day. We did another three or four runs mm -hmm. and, uh, and came back in. Yeah, it sounds like a close call. And there, I think there's some, some good points to discuss a little bit further here. Um, you know, group management being one, and it's so key to keep all your folks together. I think it makes them feel safer in in a weather environment that's kind of harsh. You know, when you can only see a few feet in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, so that seems, you know, nobody can fault you for doing that at all. Um, what are some things that that What are some big takeaways for you um, from this event? The big the big takeaway for me. Um, was really margins. You know, when we, you know, talk about like ski guiding and even, you know, going out and skiing for yourself or, or climbing or whatever, you know, you got to have those margins for safety. And there's times to push it and there's times to, there's a quote that says, you know, sometimes the mountains let you in and sometimes the mountain turns you away. And that was definitely one of the moments where the mountains were turning us away. And, you know, had we not been on the 
periphery terrain, like that was already cutting our margins pretty short. The fact that the visibility was super low, that was cutting our margins short. And then, you know, doing kind of an obscure run. So those were three strikes and and I was out. And uh, yeah, that was, that's really my biggest thing. And then, so margins was one. And, and within that too is I lost complete sight of the big picture. You know, when you when you sit there and you get pinholed and you're trying to find a good run, I should have just stepped outside and like, dude, it's blowing like 50, 60 miles an hour. I can't see three, four feet in front of me and I have to traverse a ridge line. Get your ass back in the cab. Like that's just that's just stupid. So and so why why were you guys in that zone? Why did you uh, was were your other ski runs skied out or poor snow quality or yeah. you said that a lot of the uh a lot of your runs have been scoured by wind. Yeah, that, that's kind of one of those those ego things and that internal culture of I want to provide my clients with the best possible day. Now, on the one hand, you know it was uh, it was a low vis day, so one might think protocol, if there was such protocol, was to have everyone kind of you know stint and go back into the main really well known runs. Then you're kind of skiing over old tracks, you're seeing old cat, or you're seeing cats, you're seeing people. And to me, at that point in my career, I didn't want that. I wanted to be like, you know what, I can be creative, we can venture out over here. And we had done that. There were no other cats around us, which was another safety thing. Also, when low vis days happen, our communications are drastically reduced. And so there's another safety concern. There's another margin that we just kept shaving down and shaving down. So, yeah, the reason that we were out there was because I wanted, I was cocky and I wanted to provide a good day. And then get, like I said, get creative and not just ski the same run that we ski all the time. And nobody else was going there. And nobody else was going there. And then um, that really just bit us really hard. What? Uh, how many... How many snowcats do you guys operate with on a given day? Traditionally, we're at um, three cats, mm-hmm. so about 30 clients a day Okay, on a pretty big acreage. Well, what is your acreage, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, we got about 43,000 acres. Okay. So even though that that number is enormous and does sound enormous, but a lot of that is above alpine, so that cuts off about half of our acreage right off the bat. And with the visibility, some of the passes, the roads are just, they're unpassable. So that really reduces our acreage to where you're just kind of on top of people. Right. Things get blown in. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Talk me through kind of your morning guide routine, Wes. What do you guys do? Do you have a run list? Do you guys rate your zones for, um, for avalanche danger? How do you go about making a plan for the day and and what's on and what's off um we do have a guide meeting every single morning um and let me just kind of preface this too this happened february 7th so we had an outrageous we had a a fat December. We didn't have any clients out, but we were building a lot of base. We had a January. So this was in the main swing, the main gut of our, um, of our operations. Um, shortly after this, we had, um, a warming trend where we didn't reach freeze for two weeks. So we were really firing on all cylinders. Everybody was just, wasn't worked to the bone. And, um, I wasn't necessarily working a lot. I was out there frequently. I just had a daughter. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't out there 60, 70 hours a week, but I was out there 30, 40 hours a week. So anyway, so everybody's kind of firing on all cylinders. And um, it wasn't necessarily a tricky avalanche cycle. Um, you know, there wasn't a persistent weak layer. There wasn't anything that we were really freaking out about. Um, so when that happens, we're, it wasn't quite green light, but it wasn't really worry about anything. So... Yeah, so we have a guide meeting. Um, we kind of go through the conditions of the roads, um, observations that people have seen. Each guide, each driver, each personnel has a, has a chance, an opportunity to say anything they want. Um, whoever's conducting the meeting says, you know, hey, Caleb, do you have anything to say today? Nope, cool, pass, whatever. Um, the run list for that day, we've kind of been working internally on our run list. Um, but we didn't we didn't have that that day. 
and it was kind of get out the door, don't screw it up. Right, you've been skiing that same terrain. Everybody's pretty familiar with it. You had fresh snow, and and I can't, I don't have it in my notes. I did a pretty big internal debrief as well as an organizational debrief, but the wind event that we had was wasn't that it was unprecedented, but just the loading that it had happened was outrageous. And that's when the cornices really started turning on that year. Like, yeah, they've been, you know, the cornices in early February were the size they were in March or April, but in early February. And, you know, it was that, it was that sweet spot. The wind wasn't too fast. It was breaking cornices down. It was just loading just right. And um, also conversely, the day... I actually had the next day off, and it was a bluebird day. I took my sled out there. I looked at it from the top. I boot-packed up it, and there had been a lot of naturals. It wasn't even really in a similar aspect, but just because there had been so much wind loading, I guess the thing I'm trying to say is the cornices really started growing. Right. Like From that point on throughout the year, they started getting monstrous. Yeah. Yeah, and even I think I was out there late april which is really late and they were still huge just i mean they looked like looked glacial because it was so blue and um so like i said so morning meeting nothing really out of the ordinary business as usual go out there have a good day don't screw it up um but the weather had been changing a lot i i'd have to look in my blue book that day i don't i don't have my blue book on hand but i have become accustomed to filling out trip plans every single day and i remember that i had you know cornice question mark like that was one of the observations that i needed that day but the terrain that i was skiing in didn't give me that information until i was up on top and i took a 900 foot ride right so yeah yeah i mean it's amazing the the pressure i think everybody or guides feel to provide the ultimate experience for their guests um and i think that's a interesting to interesting topic to kind of delve into is how do we as guides how do we balance that experience with um ensuring the safety i mean that's paramount right we want everybody to come home at the end of the day we want to give them the best experience so um i I really like the point that you touched on about creating good margins i think that's really key um yeah and the thing i was going to say is that it just so happened that i had um a, a really good friend of mine was on the cat that day it was like her birthday party mm. so that you know it was did that influence my direct decision to go ski that run absolutely not i wouldn't if i thought it, well, there was any danger i would not have gone there did it influence my decision making and trying to come up with a creative day where people had said in the cat yeah we don't want to see other cats yeah, we don't want to be skiing over. Not that we ever ski over all tracks, but that influenced. It it was a it was a chain. It was a chain reaction towards that. Which, um, yeah, sure. So do you do you guys give your your guests airbag packs, or if they show up with them, you know they're obviously more than welcome to use them. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we provide beacons, and we have lead guides have a full rescue pack tail guides have a full rescue pack and we also have um a rescue pack that we hand out at random so you know at any one run we'll have three sets of avalanche rescue gear um if if clients show up with their airbags they're more than welcome to the only thing that we mandate is a beacon with over 50 percent battery power sure and then we go around and we check all those two before they get in the cab um yeah, and you know, to go back to the airbag, um, that incident really changed my outlook on airbags. Um, you know, as a as a sponsored skier, one of my sponsors is Backcountry Access, and we get we get access to amazing, awesome airbags, and I love them. And I wear it all the time, whether I'm out snowmobiling by myself or whether I'm guiding. But I, like I said, I never armed it because I thought in my mind I was kind of lying to myself and tricking myself. You know, if you got to pull out your airbag, then why are you there? But then it's that thing, you know, well, if you get in your car and you got to put a seatbelt on, should you be driving? Right. No, but driving's the most dangerous thing we do. And, you know, should you be wearing a helmet? Do I need a helmet when I'm on a green run? No, but what if 
I catch an edge. What if someone skis into me? What if anything happens? Sure, it shouldn't change your decision-making process, but it's just another tool in the toolbox, right? It, exactly. And, it, and, it, and again, goes back to perhaps the, talk of the, perhaps the point of the talk is margins. Mm-hmm. To increase your margins the whole time, and uh, you know, there's a there's another guy that I work with, and I would actually I would scoff at him to be honest. I'd see him pull out his airbag every single time, do up his leg strap. And I'm like, Jesus, dude, like this is nothing. Like, what are you doing? And now it's kind of I understand why. For him, that was his cue for op- operational or sorry, situational awareness, which. I don't know if I necessarily agree with because if it's bec- if it's part of your every single day procedures, then that operation or sorry that situational awareness kind of becomes blended. Right. But but as margins of safety, yeah, that's a good thing. And the reason that he does that every time is because he went for a monster ride. He went for you know fifteen hundred foot ride. I think he deployed his airbag, and I think that's one of the things that 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 saved him. Sure. Because you do that every time. And it's one of those things, you know, like I wear knee pads now. Yeah. I never used to wear knee pads, even though I'm a telemark skier. And uh, I wear knee pads all the time. Yeah, just make it part of the practice, right? Yep, just part of the practice. And, and you know, I used to hate wearing a helmet. And now I wear a helmet all the time. It's because you don't just get used to it. Right. And if you get used to it and, and it saves you, great. If it doesn't, like, well, all right, just keep doing it. Yeah. Certainly, I, th- I think uh, you know guiding with with guests with airbags. You know, I think uh, it adds a little bit of distraction to you as a guide to make sure everybody's ready, everybody's airbag is armed, that their uh, that their leg strap is done up. You know, and, and that can actually, in some ways, take away from some of your situational awareness of what's going on with the slope you're about to ski. You know, mm-hmm. when you're at the top of a slope, you kind of need to take a moment gather yourself, come up with a plan, make sure you have good co- communication um, and clear instructions to your guests. So it certainly does slow things down a little bit. Yeah. Um, but And you know, I would be I would be I'd be lying to you right now if and this is this is kind of sometimes I have to wear two hats and my hats are becoming separate, you know, like the the professional skier and then the guide, but you know, if I have my airbag on and I'm skiing a slope with a photographer or something like that, and I understand all those risks, and I understand the terrain that I'm at, an airbag significantly increases my probability. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say, I have an airbag on. And it's that old adage like, oh, you have a beacon on? Take your beacon off. Would you still ski it? Sure. Well, if you didn't have your beacon on, I wouldn't ski anything. Right. But because I have it, now I'm skiing it. So it's the, it's a, it's that the mental thing is is a difficult is a difficult one and I'm sure you know when you're guiding and it sounded like you guys mandate that everyone has airbags on that might influence your decision making way back way 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 back in the back of your mind maybe maybe yeah I don't know if I could pinpoint that but yeah that's that's a good point I think another thing is with uh kind of this younger generation coming up where they've always skied either in the backcountry or outside of a ski area boundary which is the backcountry um you know many of these kids you know they'll get a, a beacon shovel probe and airbag for christmas right and go right out and and think that they're good to go yeah right mm-hmm. i feel like i see that quite often too and it's really important to think of that as just another tool in the toolbox and not let it influence your decision making um not that it was a factor in in the event that that you just talked about but uh i think it's a worthy note no, absolutely. And like you said, it's just like, I think, you know, I wear my beacon every single day and I don't have, I didn't have very many resort days, but even when I wear, even when I go to the resort, I still have it sure. on just cause I'm just, that's just what I do now. And, and you know, you should, your airbag shouldn't even be a thought. It shouldn't, like you said, it's like, it's like your helmet. You just put it on. It's like your beacon. You just put it on. That's just what it is. Right. It doesn't, give you the green light to go be an idiot. It doesn't give you the green light to go ski this. Um, but, uh, yeah. So like I said, that's from my guiding thing, but then in the, in the, the professional side of me, like sometimes those margins get so slim mm-hmm. and knowing, I know, I know we've talked about margins, but, um, when you know the margins and you know what you can push, that's one thing. But then on this day guiding with clients and there were so many 
missed calls on margins that just subtly snuck up on me that I was oblivious to it. And it all started with losing sight of the big picture. Yeah, that is certainly key. Um, so let's talk about after, after this event happened, right? You know, nothing really bad happened. It was certainly maybe a mistake, um, in terms of getting too close to a cornice and, you know, not the ideal situation. You had your gloves off, you had a GPS or phone in your hand, your airbag still zipped up, your trigger still zipped up. Um, and so, so you you stand up, you're off the snow, everything's okay. You find out that all your guests are fine. Um, you know, you got to finish the day, right? Yeah. You're, you're, you're trying to give these guys a good experience out in the backcountry. And what was going on in your mind in terms of um, trying to debrief your guests as to what happened and then go about finishing the day? Well, I think to answer that would be this luckily and unluckily was my first ever avalanche. Was it an avalanche? It was a cornice fall, but there was a saw slab in there. This was my first time ever dealing with any of this. In yeah, my, you took a nine hundred foot ride. That's, yeah. yeah, and and I so I'd never I'd never dealt with that. And I like I even though I thought I understood what was going on, it it, it was so hard for me to process. And my thought immediately went to I think um, my tail guide radioed me. Are you okay? And I said, Yeah. And you have to immediately get on the radio and divert our cat driver around because I knew that as soon as the driver went over the ridge, we would lose communication. So for me, I was in shock. I, I, I kept it together, but I never, I never fully let myself, I never fully let myself go there. It was mm-hmm. just like, okay, you're fine. You have this to deal with. You got to keep going on. Move like, on. That's it. Get the people down here. We're going to move together as a group. We're going to regroup over here. The cat's going to come around. Okay, we're going to make a group decision making. We just had this big incident. Everyone has all their gear together. Do you want to keep skiing or do you want to call it a day? We couldn't get base communications. We couldn't get anyone on the radio from the office or anything like that. And uh, what actually ended up happening was the the most direct line we got turned around because the cat driver went up and it was a complete whiteout. Even though we had bambooed everything, we had a like a 16 foot drift like that in, in three or four hours. So that took us another two hours. Then we had to, you know, there's the most direct way Then we had to drive all the way back around the Ridge and we still ended with our guaranteed number of runs. But it was, like I said, I was in complete shock. And as soon as, it never actually really registered that anyone went with me. I didn't actually know that all the clients, I didn't know that three of the clients had gone with me on a ride until we were grouped up. And even by that point, I was so preoccupied with getting cat drivers on the radio and that operator had never been back around this point. So I had to, in broken radio transmissions, try and describe to her how to get here. So there was so much other stuff going on that, like I said, I didn't really even comprehend that people went because I was in shock, mm-hmm. complete shock. And it was just the shock of, you got to carry on. You have a job to do. Keep doing it. No one's hurt. No gear has been lost, whatever. So, and uh, I know, you know, pre-interview, we were talking to my wife and she said, you know, when you came home, you were like, just kind of talking about it, maybe nonchalant. And the next day you were just kind of a mess. And it, and it took that, I don't know, 12 to 16 hours for it to be like, whoa, like you had a really near miss. Like that was gnarly. Sure. Yeah. So, but like I said, in, 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 uh, in hindsight, like I said, we had, we had a diverse group of skiers. We had ex-patrollers, we had doctors, we had PAs and, you know, what is, I've been with that operation. That was my third year. Does this happen all the time? <laughs> Has this ever happened to you before? Like these, and there's no protocol. There's no. This is what happens, and and it's 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 up to you to to smooth it over or not, or to make the rest of the day go over. And I said, you know, that was an extraordinary circumstance. And I'm sorry. Is everybody okay? It's up to you guys. Do you want to keep skiing? Do you want to go back? Everybody, 
unanimously voted keep going. And it was actually my friend whose birthday it was that really understood the gravity of it right then and there. As the day progressed, more and more people as we were skiing, we went back, you know, to the to kind of the heart of our terrain where we would norm where in my opinion we should have stinted. Mm-hmm. Protocol would dictate that we stinted to. And they kind of been like, that was kind of gnarly. Like, no, you know, like what happens? Like more questions, more after everything was okay and they started internalizing it. Like I said, I was still kind of in shock and like, shit, man, I got to come up with another couple of runs. I got to come up with some more, you know, full houses out of my pocket right yeah, now. Yeah, strong. Yeah. And uh, so so that happened. And then the biggest re- complaint that the operation heard was we got back to the cat. And usually, you know, when you're guiding for a day, you're you're running. You're working. You're, the easy part is is the skiing. Sure. The hard part is getting back to base, unloading, reloading, packing up, unpacking, all that stuff. So I'm running around. I don't have time. You know, you, you converse with people for a little bit, but it's not like social hour. It's, mm-hmm. I'm working still. And uh, the biggest complaint was the clients were never debriefed from the operation. And they said, you know, Weston and the tail guy did a great job. But, like, we want to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Did they want a comp for the next day? No, not necessarily. They just wanted to understand. They just wanted that information. And and truthfully, like, I was so hit over the head by it that I couldn't really digest it. And we did do a debrief that day. And essentially it was, you fucked up. You're an idiot. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, <laughs> pretty much. And it was like... And, it, and like I said, I had the day off, so I had to like – it wasn't like I was able to get back on the horse and uh, and go out there again. So like I said, the, they were never debriefed, and they're just sitting there like, dude, there's just this huge near-miss incident, whatever, and you're just going to like wave us goodbye. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of the end of it. Like I said, we debriefed internally as an organization, and it was – like I said, what it was. And uh, that was it. And my my tail guide, who has tons of education, and we're both in the avalanche education world, and we wanted to write it up. We wanted to do a debrief. We wanted to learn from this. We wanted to share it with people. We wanted to talk about it. And it was like, you know, you do that, you might be fired. Or don't talk about it. So that was kind of hard. And 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 selfishly, um, as part of the healing process, it sucked for me because it's like like even this is cathartic for me talking about it with another professional or being like, oh, you could have done this or you could have done that. And did you think about it like this? And there was just none of that. It was just like, you fucked up. Don't talk about it, and you're going to be punished for the rest of the season. But we're not going to tell you why or how. But you're going to be punished. I mean, as as unfortunate as these events are, it's also a gift, right? Nobody got hurt. Everybody walked away, um, continued skiing. But these are the most important events of our career, right? This is this is direct feedback that we can learn from. And one of the goals of this podcast is to try and shift the paradigm of sweeping these events under the rug. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we pay so much hom- homage to the old guard, previous generation in our industry that paved the way. But I will say that there's that hard men mentality of when something like this happens, you just don't talk about it. It happened, everything's okay, or sometimes maybe somebody got minorly injured and we just move on. And and. I th- I really believe that we need to shift that culture within the newer generation of avalanche professionals to to sharing that sharing these stories and, and I appreciate you sharing this one. Yeah, for sure. And I got two like kind of closing things. But one is like I said, I grew up with uh, ski patroller parents, and it's the it, the perfect example of it is you fell while you were on duty. You have to buy a pitcher of beer. Mm-hmm. Coming from my background. If you're falling, you're having fun and you're trying. Like, good on you. Like, I think a fall is hilarious and it humbles you and it's a great learning thing. Ski patrollers don't view it like that. 
a fail is a fuck up, and a, and that means you have to buy beer or you you did something wrong. You didn't do anything wrong if you fell. You're learning. Mm-hmm. Learning should be commended. Learning should be encouraged. And the second thing was this um, incident occurred before my level three, and it was really interesting to go to my level three and to talk with professionals that have been doing this for 30, 40 years, hundreds probably, some of them. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so to go into that and and to take my incident and to look at it through that light. And it's funny, you know, like I said, I was a third year guide and I feel like I aged five years in that one incident because I learned so much. And even if my particular organization is lacking in protocol and stuff like that, what I learned was priceless. Mm-hmm. And I and even though it was a shitty, awful experience that, yeah, I wish never happened, I don't think I would change it because I learned f- so much from it. And that um, the cliche of the wicked environment that is avalanche terrain and stuff like that, like you said, no one was hurt and everyone was okay. No gear was lost. And I learned a ton. Yeah, you know, like... Maybe my reputation was tarnished or there was some internal stuff going on at the organization, but I wish I could take every rookie out there and pound it into their head or have something bad like that in a good way happen to them, you know, without anyone getting hurt or killed. Because like I like you said, you learned so much from it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's and especially when there's you know, I guess just to preface this whole thing, um, on the backside is you know this, you weren't dealing with a persistent slab issue or a deep persistent slab issue, right? Um, so things might have been differently if you were different if you were dealing with a different avalanche problem, right? Um, and and I've talked about it in other podcast episodes where. A lot of times we think about the worst case scenario. Is this avalanche going to bury me and kill me? Well, no, but maybe it's going to, you know, wreck my knee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's interesting to think about the consequence of a small event. Right? Yeah, for sure. And you know, and then it goes it goes back to margins. And you know, earlier I mentioned that I have a I have a. A daughter, and it's funny because people would be like, you know, has your skiing changed? Cause yeah, I, cause I was going to ask you that. I just go out and I do, you know, crazy-ish stuff. And, I, you know, that first year I would answer, no, my skiing hasn't changed. But now she's seven months old. And, and I look at it more of, like you said, like if I go out and tweak my knee, that's my family's livelihood. If I go out and do something stupid, then that doesn't just affect me. It affects a lot of other people. And... Again, as my hats have changed over life, you know, going from a professional skier to to a guide, like every decision that I make impacts other people. So my decision making has changed. And, you know, like after that event, I don't care if it's 10 of my best friends, I'm going to go ski where it's safe. And it's harsh. And I hate to say it and it's kind of jaded, but like I'm going to ski safe shit. I don't feel like going out and pushing it. If it's a bluebird day and the mountains are saying, yes, come in, and some of the margins and we can go out there and just push a little bit and then come back in, maybe that's a different story. Maybe. And I used to look at, um, you know, within the organization I work with, there's no real mentorship program. There's a little bit, there's a lot of bit of internal competition. On the one hand, you have the people that go out, try and get really tweaky with it and push it a lot and get crazy run lists. And then you have the other people that just go to the same place over and over and over and over again. And they'll sit in the same location for weeks on end. I don't want to be like either one of those people. I want to be in the middle. I want to say like, look at it. It's you know, it's kind of a risky day out there. Let's go ski safe terrain. I want to do something steeper, tough shit. Come back. I don't know, or this is what it is. And the the irony of that, too, is I've been in, uh, I don't know, how would I say this? I've been in customer service for years. I used to be a waiter, all kinds of stuff. And dealing with people, you understand what people want. 
Sometimes people don't know what they want. Sometimes, you know, people skiing those green runs, best time they've ever had. You go scare people and you go put them on stuff that's way above their ability, even though they've done something for the first time in their lives. Still, the people that are happy and never got scared skiing the green runs tip more. Sure. And that's, <laughs> then there's like the joke of like, what's the difference between a large pizza and a ski guide? Large pizza can feed people. And we're in this, you know, for the for the long haul and, and those those things. Like you said, a little avalanche, could it kill me? No, but it could absolutely take me into the trees and tweak my knee. And, I, you know, if I do something stupid or somebody gets hurt because it's a steep run, or, it's on you. And that's the other thing at my organization. Everything falls on the lead guide. It's not necessarily a team activity. It's on you. Mm-hmm. If you screw up, you screwed up. Someone loses a ski, they you shouldn't have taken them on that run. Someone gets hurt, you shouldn't have taken them on that run. So it's a hard it's a hard thing to swallow, but that's the reality. And then, but then again, it's it's not a hard thing to swallow. It's just that's the way it is, and those are the margins. Sure. What are some other margins that that you utilize? Um, maybe thinking more towards group management when you're skiing. You as a lead guide, and you have a tail guide, and you got ten clients. What are some other margins that you you use on a regular basis? Well, just a couple. I mean, it's just it's almost hard to verbalize them because they're so intuitive. But it's you know somebody's tired. Let's not go do that hard run. Mm-hmm. Let's go do a different run. This person's not the greatest skier. Let's not go do that. Someone's feeling sick. Let's slow it down. Any number of things. It's just reading people, and that was. Not, not to validate myself, but I was as I was reading the, the clients on the day of my incident, it was pointing towards that. It wasn't like back off. It was like, let's ramp up, let's get nuts. And that's the hard, you know, the hard thing for me is sometimes I read people too much, and I will give them that. But the better and the more mature thing to say is, somebody's sick. Somebody was out partying. Somebody just flew in from lower elevation. The snow conditions are a little bit funky. The light conditions are bad. You know, this is somebody's birthday party. This is someone's 60th birthday. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the, the, you know, it, it's the truth when, when people say, like, you got to cater to the lowest common denominator. It doesn't matter if you have 11 rippers that go to Alaska every year and then you have a 65-year-old woman, that happens. And I hate to say it, but like I have to take care of this person. And if, if those rippers can't have fun skiing good quality snow, fresh tracks, yep. and some tree terrain that might not be as steep as what they would ideally be skiing, yep. then that's on them. You know, it, yeah, that's, for- that's my mentality of it. Um, you do have to cater to the lowest common denominator and, and read your group, like you said. And then the, the 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 funny part of that is like I've also like I said it was my third year first year lead guiding I've also catered to those people they still tip like crap <laughs> but it but but the reason because they had more fun not being scared they have more fun well I could have done better leave them wanting more and and that's a like I said it, the mountains dictate everything and there's times to do everything and there's times to back off and uh you know and then there's but then i've also heard quotes from from guides being like i could roll them down that which literally means they can fall down it i can get the rest of the group down and it doesn't matter so that there's a lot there's so much providing the best experience for everybody at that point yeah right yeah so so there's so much to balance and there's so much decision making in, in a completely fluid environment sure where it changes from 20 minutes it's you can see stuff you can see 600 feet in front of you and then in the next 20 seconds you can see three feet in front of you so here's a question for uh you know and i I think some of our listeners whether they're just getting into backcountry skiing as recreationalists with their friends or their newer guides or seasoned guides um you know it's a ever-changing environment that we work in and you know, and then you add in group management of clients or friends. What are what are some techniques that you use to gather observations, snowpack, weather observations, 
um, on the go while you're guiding. I think that's something that some people sometimes struggle with to get quality observations. What do you do with your guests while you're digging a snow pit? What sort of tests are you doing out in the field while guiding? You know, that's a really, really good, valid question and a difficult one. And I think it doesn't necessarily, the thing I would say is it doesn't necessarily have to do with observations, but it has to do with making good decisions in a warm environment Mm. and sticking to those. Like I said, it, leading up to my level three, one of the prerequisites was, you know, whatever, 20 day trip plans. And I really took that upon myself. And I used to think that was BS. And now I'm like, dude, I do those all the time. And if I break that, I'm screwing up. That's a margin right there. That's a margin right there. And, you know, it's, it's um, I, again, you know, going, and this is, this, I'm going into my fourth year of guiding and, we have some guides that go out there and dig a snow pit. Guests get irate. The company gets a little irate. What are you doing? We're fortunate where I work that we have a dedicated snow safety team. So we have a team that goes out. Maybe they do some explosive control work. Maybe they go dig some pits and there are forward ops. But, you know, like that day, had I had relevant observations, I could have made better decisions. I'm not saying that's on anyone else but me. But um, for me, and I, I tell a lot of the people that I teach, it's just about, and it's the thing that I screwed up the most on is the advice that I give to everyone is just your brain, your eyes are the two best tools you have. Get your head out of the skin track, get your head out of the cat, the helicopter, whatever, and just look around, seeing things, feeling the snow, like, I, you know, and in and, and doing the level three and all those standardized procedures and stuff like that yeah that has a, a time and a place if in my opinion if you're an observer if you're a ski guide and stuff like that there's a lot of other stuff going on you know if i was doing a hut trip that might be completely different but in the location and the environment that i'm in i don't necessarily need to do a foot penetrometer to tell me how much snow's falling and if i keep stick within my margins then i'm buffering that and sure. I have a better clientele experience than being like, you know. But then one could also argue if I took better observations and if I had slowed down, then maybe I would have been the only one that went over the cornice and not three other people. So I think it's a really fine line and slowing down is a big thing. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Speed yeah. kills. And keeping keeping an eye on the big picture. For sure. Yeah, and I totally lost sight of that. And I look at the big picture, and like I said, got out of the cat and been like, "It's a snow globe," and people are falling over from the wind. Everybody back in the cat. Oh man, I really want to do it. Doesn't matter. We'll go do the same run we just did. You know, it'll be the third time we did it, and then we'll go have lunch. But that's you know, that's what making good decisions is. Sure. Yeah, good decisions aren't always the popular decision. No, and they're not always easy. <laughs> they're not always easy. No, rarely are. How has this event changed the way that you guide? Well, I, I would definitely say that, you know, when we started this you know, podcast, I talked about how it was really easy for me to say no on a, on a personal level. And it was a lot harder for me to say no with groups. And uh, I'm a lot better at saying no. And I give myself, you know, summertime guiding is a lot about personality, giving the guests what they want. And I can... You know, I can manipulate mountain biking and hiking trails and 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 climbing trails to accommodate for that in, in a subverse, you know, way. And you can you can deal with a lot of that. But um with with ski guiding, I'm kinda of taking a little bit of a step back and it's nice being in a cat. Usually the lead guide sits in front, tail guides in back. Tail guide, you deal with people. Lead guide, you make decisions. You are the computer that analyzes everything. And uh yeah, I'm just slowing down margins saying no and a lot of times people want to hear no and i hate to say it but but you know it's like sometimes like a dog like a dog wants to be trained a dog wants to be told what to do so they don't have to worry about it sometimes people are like this are just like that and you tell them and you give them structure and they're appreciative yeah they might bitch and complain but then at the end of the day they're like that was the best day ever and you're like that was the best day ever (laughs) well all right you never know what, what people's experiences are, and you really can't. Uh, you know, I have a big mentor that 
always says, you know, you get to the bottom of a ski run, you never say, man, that was a great run, or that was a shitty run, I'm sorry. Because you never know what their experience was. You never know where they're coming from. That could have been the best run of their life. You know, you might rate it a 2, yeah. and they're like, that's a 10. And so you just, you know, say, yeah. say yeah. here, you want some chewing gum? <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> get the cat. <laughs> I've never heard that, but it is so true. I get down, I'm like freaking out. Like, that was the most insane run I've had all year. And people are like, meh. Right. And then I get down and I'm like, man, and they're like, that was amazing. I'm like, what did you ski? Did yeah. you like ski someplace? I did. I told you not to. Ski? I don't know. Like, but it's that's so true. And each individual experience is completely unique. Yeah, everybody has their own little reality, I guess. Yep, for sure. But the biggest goal is to keep everybody safe and keep having fun, right? Well, that's the that's the other one. Other thing I would definitely say is, you know, I used to think that my number one goal was to go out and give like the most amazing unforgettable day ever that's not what my job is my job is to bring everyone home safe sure period and like i said we have a we have a guide that will sit in one area for weeks on end and everybody else is like dude you're eating up all the runs people got to be bored cat drivers are like i've just driven around in circles but Everyone came home safe at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, there's a time and place to push it, and and uh, it's important to know when that is. Yeah, for sure. Well, Wes, I really appreciate you sharing your story and, and adding to a culture of of learning from these events. Um, it's really important to me, and I know it is to you, and and uh, I hope somebody gains something from, from listening to this. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I just encourage everybody to go out there and talk. Yeah. Don't hold it in. That screws you up more. That makes you more, I don't know, pigheadish and vulnerable and you just get bad habits. But go talk about it. Go, you know, be like, man, I screwed up. Man, I've done the same thing. Learn. Right. Be a community. Don't don't compartmentalize and just shut down and Yeah. Nobody's an island. Nobody's an island, yeah. And everyone can learn something from everyone doesn't matter if you've only been in the backcountry for 10 days. I bet you could teach someone that's been in the backcountry for 10 years sure. and vice versa. Yeah. So everything's a learning experience. Well, thanks for coming on, Wes, and it was fun hanging out and drinking a couple beers with you. Yeah, thank you. All right, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Check out the website, www.theavalanchehour.com to get links to other episodes. Check out the bios of our guests. Buy some swag to help support the show and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. I know you've been wanting to, but keep forgetting. Take a couple of minutes to do it now. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Tag us in a post to be entered to win a pair of Black Diamond's award-winning Helio gloves. The drawing will take place on February 15th. Thanks to the sponsors of our show, TAS Gazex, Black Diamond Peeps, and Ten Barrel Brewing. Music today was performed by Grammatic, with permission from the artist. Check out more of Grammatic's tracks at grammatic.net. That's G-R-A-M-A-T-I-K dot net. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. You demand T. We'll be back with you on February 15th when we highlight an interview with Mike Ream of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort and the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center. You don't want to miss this one. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. <laughs>